From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Russian meddling continues, as former special counsel Robert Mueller testified. They're doing it as we sit here, and they expect to do it uh, during the next campaign. So how is Colorado's election system prepared, not just for cyber attacks, but for disinformation? Then, living off the grid in the San Luis Valley. We always wanted to buy land, and land was cheap out here. And so we came down here to try to live more self-sufficient. But that spirit sometimes clashes with the powers that be. Plus, why rural areas like Alamosa are so hard hit by the opioid epidemic. We get insight from the Washington Post, which tracked virtually every pain pill distributed over the course of years. And later, weather that can really mess with your daily life. Not hail or heat, but solar flares. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Former special counsel Robert Mueller was asked Wednesday on Capitol Hill if Russian attempts to interfere in the 2016 election were a one-time thing. Oh, it wasn't a single attempt. They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. And Mueller says he believes other countries are developing ways to wreak havoc in U.S. elections, using social media, for instance. The testimony got us thinking about what steps Colorado is taking to protect elections. We reached the state's elections director, Judd Choate, who addressed questionable content on the web. Part of our job is to know what's being said on social media so that if someone or groups are trying to spread misinformation or disinformation, we can be there to combat that. And so we monitor what uh, people are saying about Colorado elections. Choate gave an example from 2018 when Democrat Stephanie Rose Spaulding of Colorado Springs tried to unseat Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn. Choate says someone created a fake Spaulding Facebook page. That candidate did not authorize the creation of that Facebook page. And then there was some information that was posted on that page, which was incorrect or certainly not in keeping with what that candidate uh, viewed as important or truthful about her candidacy. So we informed Facebook and informed the Department of Homeland Security, and we all worked together to get that page taken down. Choate says that took about two days. He says now it would happen much faster. The Colorado Secretary of State's office, which oversees elections, meets regularly with U.S. Homeland Security. Choate says this state is rare in having three officials with federal clearance to collaborate. He notes that not every state even attends the Fed's briefings. Choate says these meetings, while maybe not about Colorado, are very relevant to the work that you do to secure your systems in Colorado. Why and how a bad actor is trying to access your system. And so that helps you to bring that information home to craft security measures which will improve those systems. Judd Choate sees Colorado as a national role model when it comes to election security, pointing to a number of bills in Congress that would do nationally what's already being done here. Take, for instance, a measure sponsored by Minnesota Democratic Senator and presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar. It included things like all states should have risk-limiting audits. Well, we have a risk-limiting audit. We're the only state in the country that has one. We invented it. And it has every state system should have WAFs, web-enabled firewalls. Every system should have multi-factor authentication. I mean, Colorado either invented or was the leader in each of these areas. 
Choate adds that more federal money is critical. To support us and other states so that we can continue to evolve on these election uh, security issues because, frankly, the actors, the bad actors out there are not changing. I mean, they're still doing bad things and they're getting better at it. So we need to stay in front of those bad actors. And the way to do that is through additional funds. That is Colorado's elections director, Judge Choate. We spoke after Robert Mueller's congressional testimony, warning that more foreign attacks on the U.S. election system may be coming. Two representatives from Colorado questioned Mueller Wednesday, and because the two were from different parties, things went, as you might predict, differently. Director Mueller, thank you for your service to our country. I'd like to talk to you about one of the other incidents of obstruction. Democrat Joe Neguse of Boulder focused on the president's role in trying to cover up a 2016 meeting at Trump Tower between Trump's son and a Russian lawyer. Isn't it true that Ms. Hicks told your office that she went multiple times to the president to, quote, urge him that they should be fully transparent about the June 9th meeting, end quote, but the president each time said no, correct? Accurate. Republican Representative Ken Buck put on his prosecutor hat. He used to be the DA in Weld County, and he took Mueller to task. The report contradicts what you taught young attorneys at the Department of Justice, including to ensure that every defendant is treated fairly. Mueller has said his team did not reach a conclusion on whether the president committed obstruction of justice because of a legal opinion saying sitting presidents cannot be prosecuted. But Buck argued that puts President Trump in an unreasonable position. By listing the 10 factual situations and not reaching a conclusion about the merits of the case, you unfairly shifted the burden of proof to the president, forcing him to prove his innocence while denying him a legal form to do so. Well, CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim was able to talk with both Buck and Nagoose after the testimony. And Caitlin joins us. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Hi. What did each of these men think after the hearing? Well, not surprisingly, they had different opinions after the hearing. Representative DeGoose thought it went well. The testimony, he said, was what he expected from a prosecutor's prosecutor. It provided context and clarity on the findings and conclusions of this 448-page report. And to him, it also confirmed some of these incidents uh, that were in the obstruction of justice section of the the report, things that you've already mentioned. Um, So he thought it went well and that uh, it helped inform the American public. Buck, on the other hand, um, thought that uh, Mr. Mueller stuck to sort of the four corners of the report. He he stayed within the boundaries of that report. Um, he also said that uh, Mr. Mueller looked tired, that he struggled with some of the questions. He said he was sort of like low on gas. Uh, Buck himself got a lot of attention for two questions he asked Mueller. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. Liberals got really excited about this exchange. In fact, the state Democratic Party sent out a press release saying they were sending Buck a handwritten thank you note. Uh, Caitlin, what was this exchange actually about? Right. So I actually asked uh, Representative Buck about this. The point he was trying to make, which is something that you talked about earlier, was that while um, the Mueller report declined to prosecute uh, when it came to um, uh, collusion with the Russians, when it came to the obstruction part, basically it laid out these 10 situations, but made no recommendation to prosecute or to decline to prosecute, which he thought was unfair. And the regulations, he says, you know, 
says that Mueller was supposed to make a recommendation. So what Buck thinks was when he got to that point of could he be prosecuted after, that Mr. Mueller misunderstood it, his question, that he was asking sort of in theory, yes, a president could be prosecuted. Hmm. He was not saying that this president should be prosecuted. And it's important to note that Mr. Mueller made that clarification himself in the when he testified in front of the Intelligence Committee in the afternoon. Uh, meanwhile, Representative Joe Neguse, again at Boulder, is among the growing group of House Democrats who have called for the president to be impeached. Uh, did he talk to you about that after the hearing? Um, we didn't really talk about impeachment so much as the next steps. I mean, he made clear that, you know, that that he's come out in support of impeachment and that's where his view is, or in support of the impeachment inquiry. No. So what he said was that um, he thought that the caucus, the Democrats, would sort of you know, take stock of what happened, uh, all the testimony, and they'd have robust conversations about the next steps. You know, again, he he knows where he wants to go with the next steps. I think it's important to note that House Speaker or Speaker Pelosi has not called for an impeachment inquiry yet. Um, She's been very um, clear that the House Democrats need to take a very methodical approach. Um, They really need a strong case if they are going to push for the inquiry one based on facts and one based on law. Caitlin, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Washington reporter, Caitlin Kim, who joined us by phone from Capitol Hill. The Mueller hearings dominated my social media feeds Wednesday, but scrolling through Facebook, I was reminded that big news is relative. While the former special counsel was being grilled in Washington, my colleague at CPR Classical, Carla Walker, posted that her 16-year-old son, Ethan, was celebrating. He got his driver's license and his braces off on the same day. For the past five years, I've had this big metal piece in my mouth, and it's just different. It's like a little piece is gone from my body, but nothing I'm going to miss. And as for being able to drive on his own? I was extremely excited because it's just this uh, new feeling of freedom and just, uh, I don't know, it made me made me feel more like an adult, like one step closer to adulthood, which I'm very excited about. 16-year-old Ethan Goodhart of Centennial, proving that this was indeed a big news week. The San Luis Valley in southern Colorado is vast, bigger than some states, and in recent years it has attracted newcomers seeking land, stunning views, and self-determination. We always wanted to buy land, and land was cheap out here, and so we came down here to try to live more self-sufficient and a sustainable living rather than living on, on the grid. We would rather live off the grid. Frank Gruber is one of these settlers and one of several people profiled in the latest edition of Harper's Magazine. Ted Conover wrote the article, and he decided the best way to understand living off the grid and the people who choose it, including their politics, was to live that life himself. And Ted, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. We're going to talk about your firsthand experience in a bit, but uh, it's interesting. You call the people you profile homesteaders. I wonder wonder what you mean by that word in the modern context. I guess that's not exactly accurate. That's a historical phrase, but in terms of how they think about themselves and the activity of living out there on what's pretty much the last frontier, they do seem like homesteaders. They 
often arrive at raw land with very minimal resources and through, um, you know, persistence and uh, sweat equity, make something out of it. So that's what I was thinking with that. You note that this is some of the cheapest land in the United States. Who, who are the people moving to the San Luis Valley? Give us a sense. Well, they're people without a lot of money, mostly, because it's not the most um, attractive place to live in various ways. There are very few trees out on the prairie between the mountains, um, and that's what we're talking here. We're not talking the nicer wooded areas on the edge of the valley, like, uh, you know, Fort Garland or uh, Alamosa. Um, This is really out in the middle of nowhere. It's windy, it's sandy. Uh, it gets super cold, um, but the land is really cheap. Back in the 70s, it was subdivided into five-acre lots. Lots of the valley was. There's more than 40,000 of these lots. Many never sold because it's one thing to own five acres, but then what are you going to do with it exactly? There's no utilities were provided as part of this subdividing, and uh, and in recent years, I think uh, solar panels and um, the you know legalization of marijuana are two things that have drawn people to the area. Uh, just to quote your article in Harper's, you you say among these folks are doomsday preppers, Christian homeschoolers, self-proclaimed sovereign citizens, weed lovers, and Hillary haters. Uh, <laughs> Fra- Frank Gruber, who we heard from earlier says there are indeed a lot of challenges to living in the area. We've had two babies, um, so it was harder then. Uh, The older kids, they love it. Um, They wouldn't trade it back in for nothing. They don't even like going back into the city very often. Uh, Many of these residents don't live in what we would think of as traditional houses. (laughs) Right. The most common is to arrive with a an RV or a trailer of some kind, and then when you're able, add on to it. Uh, maybe, <clears throat> you know, with a a shed you build yourself or a tough shed you buy or a second trailer that you connect it to somehow. Um, so it, it, a lot of things are kind of ramshackle. There's not much um, government oversight of building out there, and people improvise. You mentioned solar. You mentioned marijuana. Are those the industries that employ people? Like, how do they earn a living? Yeah, so employment's the big problem out here. I'm I'm down here right now, actually. Um, and a few people have jobs who live out on the prairie. Um, but it's always sort of tenuous because you depend heavily on your car there's not usually a backup car, and if something goes wrong and you can't get to work, you probably will lose your job. So a lot of people out here have some, you know, fixed income. Maybe they're on Social Security disability or a military pension or some modest income that lets them just be out here and make minimal trips into town for groceries and stuff like that. But it also, you know, having that then a lifeline means when things go wrong, you're in bad shape. And and so what attracted me initially to the whole area was this program from a group called La Puente, based in Alamosa, that 
that notice people who show up at their shelter, their homeless shelter, in the winter were more and more people who were trying to give it a go out there oh. on the flats. And uh, so, yeah, they decided if we could keep these people from becoming homeless, maybe fewer would end up in the shelter. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and journalist Ted Conover joins us. He wrote a piece called The Last Frontier for Harper's Magazine about the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado. And uh, you grew up in Colorado, Ted. Uh, you live um, part of the year in New York City. And uh, you, you didn't just visit the San Luis Valley and report on the residents. You lived in one of these you know, so, so-called homesteads. You rented land from another family, lived in a trailer. And uh, what I remember most from your description is the cold. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to think about cold right now. Things are so hot. But uh, one night, your heat stops working. Tell us about that. So I wasn't very good at living in a trailer. At the beginning, I didn't quite get it. And um, I ran out of my battery, which powered the little furnace, and, uh, uh, oh gosh, was it that, or did I run out of propane? It was, it happened so many times, um, and I had a Arctic weight sleeping bag inside, and so I was okay until I had to get up in the morning, and then, you know, it gets below zero, and I thought, well, before I head into town, I'm going to at least brush my teeth, and I, um, uh, I'd put a water bottle in my sleeping bag as a as a winter camper knows to do. But when I took out the toothbrush and put toothpaste on it, put it in my mouth, it was frozen solid, hmm. and and so there was it was like a rock. And um, so it took me a while to figure things out. Um, you know, the Grubers helped me in various ways with the technology of living in a trailer in the middle of winter, but. There's a lot to figure out, but actually that's part of the point for me. I am a journalist in New York City, and um, and yeah, if the last election taught me anything, it's that people like me need to pay attention to life outside of cities, and, um, and I've always been intrigued by the Valley, and I was just kind of amazed that people were living out here in such a bare-bones way. What did you learn politically? from this experience? So I'm still sorting that out. Um, You know, naturally, you might think that people who are on public assistance or getting government money to survive would tend toward Democrats um, who seem more friendly to that whole idea. But what you find is the whole idea of self-determination and freedom from government is a powerful part of um, of living on the frontier and of uh, you know this whole idea of making a go and 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 not being dependent. Um, it, it's a, it seems contradictory in some ways because people who take government money are dependent, but the idea that you should be left alone not forced to educate your kids a certain way, not forced to live a certain way, not forced uh, to pay a landlord, um, right? Almost nobody out here rents. People buy the land, and then uh, they achieve that part of the American dream, and that's a very powerful thing. But as you say, it's also a tenuous life. Uh, There's also 
a lot of friction in the area between these so-called homesteaders and law enforcement. You know, sometimes these settlers don't have septic tanks. Generally, they're not following code, other laws. They may even be squatting on land. How does that friction play out? That's all true. And it, it, there, the friction comes and goes. Um, uh, Castilla County uh, is a very large county with a lot of these five-acre lots, but not much um, money like like so many other poor Colorado counties. They don't have much to spend on code enforcement and such, but they they decided to spend a lot a few years ago and really cracked down on people who had moved out here without septic systems. And they, they were really heavy-handed in, um, you know, giving people 10 days to get a system in or be fined $50 a day for not having it. And, and uh, essentially ended up evicting people who'd lived here for a long time uh, who couldn't raise the money that quickly. And it's true, they didn't have septic systems but uh, while they were supposed to, but there's various ways to handle that situation. And now I'd say they're being a bit more conciliatory. Um, you, you got this advice, don't wear tan or blue. Those are the colors that the county code inspectors and sheriff's deputies wear. And you are, to some extent, putting yourself in danger. I guess in, in the, just about the last minute or so that we have, Ted, I, I do want to reflect on the, the beauty of the San Luis Valley, the magnetism and what drew you there. Just briefly. Well, that's it. It's, it's one of the most glorious parts of the United States, if you ask me. I woke up this morning, looked out my window um, toward the San Juan Mountains. There were some cows uh, in the foreground, but just the most gorgeous skies and uh, gentle peaks in the distance. And um, no matter how poor you might be to live in a place of such beauty um, makes you feel less poor, makes you feel, um, you know, that you're lucky that this is a, a good life and, and uh, an amazing place. So it's, it's a big contrast, the poverty and a lot of the extreme neediness you see with the glorious natural surroundings. I think what speaks to me so much about your article and about what you've told us here is that desire to just own a chunk of land, a little slice of the American dream, and the trade-offs that sometimes have to be made to do that. Thanks, Ted. My pleasure. Thank you. Journalist Ted Conover wrote The Last Frontier about modern homesteaders in the San Luis Valley. That was for Harper's Magazine. He also directs the journalism school at New York University. A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, 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 it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People can go to the doctor's office and leave with the seeds of an addiction. 
That's what 48 states, including Colorado, claim in lawsuits against Big Pharma. They allege drug companies distributed billions of pain pills, knowing they were addictive. Just this month, Colorado expanded its lawsuit against Purdue Pharma to include the family that owns that company. Well, the Washington Post worked for years to essentially track every pain pill dispensed in a certain period of time in the U.S. Stephen Rich is the newspaper's database editor and contributed to this reporting. And Stephen, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the data that you dove into are from 2006 to 2012. And the Post describes it as a virtual roadmap of the opioid epidemic. I guess, first off, what surprised you the most from this project? Honestly, it was the sheer number of pills that flowed into communities around the country. I mean, we weren't really sure what we were going to see once we got this data. But once we did, we found that more than 76 billion pills over a seven-year period sort of flowed into pharmacies around the country. Um, and the, the those numbers are equate to 36 pills per person per year for the entire United States, which oh. is just a very large number. I'm so glad you could put that number into some context. The, the epidemic has hit rural communities especially hard. Uh, CPR has reported on this from Alamosa in southern Colorado. Um, I'm just going to share this from our criminal justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Alamosa's jail, in the heart of the impoverished San Luis Valley, is perhaps the epicenter of the state's opioid crisis. More than 90 percent of its inmates are addicted to heroin. Of course, we know there's a strong tie between pain pills and heroin. Uh, We've also reported on expectant mothers in Alamosa who struggle with addiction. What do the numbers show about uh, Alamosa, about Colorado more generally? So we know that Alamosa has uh, about 10 million uh, pain pills flowed through it in that seven-year period, which was about 88 pills per person per year. It's more than two times the national average. And so that is uh, um, a lot uh, for the state, especially considering that Colorado is is slightly lower on – is just around that national average uh, for pills per person. So Alamosa is clearly like a, a, a point at which a lot of people were getting these drugs. Um, in that time frame. And how does that contrast with Colorado more generally? Um, so Colorado is just about at the national average of uh, around 35 uh, pills per person. Um, and But uh, it is significantly higher than, than the Colorado average. It seems to be sort of an epicenter of Colorado, as your reporter stated. Yeah. So there, there are pockets and uh, they tend towards rural, I think. Why is that? Uh, so in it in rural areas, they used to most of them are like former industrial centers, or there 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 are a lot of farmers who do a lot of manual labor. They were the most likely people to be prescribed these pain pills mm. for either injuries that they sustained or long term wear and tear from as related to their jobs. And uh, they were these pills had were originally marketed not as addictive as they have they are. And so it wound up uh, being more of an issue in rural areas because the prescriptions came were the people in these areas were prescribed sooner and more often. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Stephen Rich of The Washington Post, who has been covering the opioid epidemic, was part of a massive project 
that uh, tracked essentially every pill distributed for a certain number of years in the country. I'll say that Robert Valak, who leads the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, told CPR that the data are clear. Where opioids go, problems go with them. Misuse, addiction, overdoses, deaths. Uh, you, you reflected a bit on how people might become addicted. Did, say more about the typical road to addiction that you found through your reporting. So a lot of it is through this pres- these prescriptions. I mean, hydrocodone and oxycodone are two of the most prescribed uh, opioids in the country. And uh, they originally were not marketed as particularly addictive. And it took a while for people to realize. And so people were getting prescribed these things and then they no longer needed them. And then more and more pills were getting diverted into the black market. And so people were getting their hands on them that way. Um, and so really what we saw was the the most of the path into the addiction was through for legitimate pain. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so um, that is how we sort of have ended up here. Right. And to go back to the numbers, if you're looking at a, an average of 36 pills for every American, and remember... Most of those Americans won't need those pills, so this is rough justice here. But that means there's a glut of them. There's a lot of them available on a sort of secondary or black market that can feed that addiction, I, I gather. Yeah, I mean, we know that once the the DEA started cracking down and, and these pills started becoming less available, they, they flooded into the black market. And once they stopped showing up as as prevalent on the black market, people switched over to heroin because heroin is a very similar kind of uh, drug that 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 soothes people in the same way that uh, that these drugs are designed to, which has also led into fentanyl, which is a drug that is a hundred times more powerful and has killed a lot more people in recent years. A big part of this reporting is learning that uh, six companies distributed seventy five percent of the pills. Uh, again, allegedly with the knowledge that they were addictive. Does your reporting at all reveal intent? So some of it does. Uh, We have, alongside getting this data, we have... uh, asked that the courts open up their uh, the documents that have been uh, available during discovery. And what we found is that there are many cases where uh, money was the main driver of, of pills. There are sales associates whose main job it was was to sell as many of these and distribute as many of these as possible. Um, we also saw that the companies are required to report suspicious orders to the DEA and would do things uh, like reclassify them as peculiar instead of suspicious to get around that and to continue to to sell these pills to pharmacies around the country. So we know a little bit about that, but this case in in, Cle- in Cleveland, Ohio is really going to test whether that intent was real. Yeah, that, a lot of eyes are on that legal action. Just help us understand what's at stake there. So there are almost 2,000 counties, cities, towns, and tribes uh, suing mostly the drug manufacturers and distributors in these cases um, for basically uh, fueling the opioid epidemic. And so what they're really trying to do is prove that they knew what they were doing and did nothing to stop it. And and so it is the largest civil action in U.S. history, even bigger than the tobacco lawsuits. And, and so really what's at stake is, is whether or not the government recognizes that these companies – uh, played a major part in fueling the epidemic, which we will see in the coming months and years. 
The information in your database took years to obtain. You submitted Freedom of Information Act requests, I think, more than three years ago and were denied. What was the breakthrough to be able to be this precise? I mean, down to the pill. So when this uh, when this court case happened and we it became clear to us this data was going to be made available to the plaintiffs, uh, we decided that we would intervene in the case uh, in an effort to make the data public. Uh, you know, these court cases often become public, but sometimes they happen behind closed doors. And we felt and we have felt for years that this data would really help sort of inform our understanding of how pills got into our communities. And so we we knew that the, the DEA kept this database because they're they're required to. Mm. And so this seemed like the the path of least resistance um, because we had been trying every other way. And how difficult was it to get that access? I mean it, it it's we we got we intervened in the court case uh, about a year ago. So it, we've been working for a year just on on this path alone. And honestly, we we didn't think we would see it. We got originally denied, and we had to appeal um, in federal court uh, before an appellate court ruled that we could have it. So it's it's been a lot longer than we had hoped, but we finally have it. What has been the response, uh, Stephen Rich of the Washington Post, to these revelations? I mean, it's been kind of incredible. We've been going into uh, communities uh, in our area that have been especially hit down in Southwest Virginia, in West Virginia. And the the response from people on the ground is incredible because this is something that they've lived. Mm-hmm. You know, telling these people that there were a lot of these pills shipped into their communities is not a particular surprise to them, but they are happy that people are talking about it. They, they really think that these these pills uh, caused a lot of damage in these communities and they really have just wanted to talk about it and they're finally really getting their chance to do so on a, on a big stage. And I know just briefly that this has entered uh, the presidential campaign as well. Yeah. So a lot of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates have been calling uh, for one, for people to be criminally prosecuted um, in in these cases, people who worked for these companies, people who knew what they were doing and did nothing. Um, but they, you know, they are also, uh, they, they want to see more. They want, they want as much transparency as possible. And, and we're hoping that through, uh, our intervention in this case, that we will be able to make as much of it transparent as, as we can. Uh, meanwhile, White House, uh, White House official, that is Kellyanne Conway has touted the president's efforts to tackle the opioid crisis. Uh, arguing in a statement that the Trump administration has tackled it head on while the Obama administration ignored the growing drug crisis rolling into this country, just for some perspective there. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Stephen Rich of The Washington Post, who's covering the opioid epidemic. Rural communities, including Alamosa, have been especially hard hit. We got new numbers this week that point to some progress, though. They come from Health First Colorado, the state's Medicaid program, and they show a 44 percent reduction in the number of people covered who use opioids. That dip occurred from 2014 to 2018. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (music) 
It was 1859, and the largest solar flare ever seen lit up the northern lights so bright that campers in Colorado said they could read the newspaper at midnight. Well, now, new research shows we could face a much bigger flare in the future. That's a cause for concern in the digital age, as we're going to hear. Doug Duncan is an astronomer at CU Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Nice to see you again. So this uh, largest solar flare ever seen uh, struck in 1859, yes. b- before TV and radio, But there was telegraph. Yes, and it was interesting what happened. So a gentlemanly British astronomer named Richard Carrington was making sketches of sunspots with his own telescope, as he did routinely. And all of a sudden one day, right where the black sunspot was, was an enormous white glow. And it lasted for several minutes. And it was a solar flare. No one had ever seen something like that. And then a couple of days later, the northern lights on the Earth got tremendously bright. They came all the way down to Cuba and Hawaii. Oh, my. And, and Carrington, you know, kind of made cause and effect that something must have shot out of the sun and hit us and made those northern lights. And made the telegraph. Oh, yeah. Because I guess the lines <clears throat> caught fire. Well, in, in, in 1859, imagine somebody sitting at a desk and tap, tap, tapping out Morse code. Yeah. When suddenly... <laughs> sparks start flying out of the wires. And that's what happened. Would that have happened immediately or the few days after? The, the, when, the, when the stuff hit the atmosphere a few days later is when all the effects came. Okay. So scientists estimate that today a flare of a similar size could cause $10 trillion in damage. Now we learn we could face an even bigger solar flare. We'll get to that in a moment. But what is a solar flare? Help us understand. Sure. It's a giant release of magnetic energy from the sun. And all that energy heats things up and gas starts shooting out of the sun through space. The sun is mostly hydrogen. So, uh, but it's so hot, the hydrogen comes apart into a proton and an electron. And that stuff shoots through space and it, it gets to the earth. And, um, you know, that's what causes all the problems is the the surge of electricity coming through space. Do we know why the sun does this? Is it just because it's a frenetic, chaotic environment? You know, um, magnetic fields can rearrange themselves and Uh kind of like like snap and move the gas around and heat it up and, and shoot it out. Actually, because we don't know the details is why we've sent a probe for the very first time to go into the sun's atmosphere. It's called the Parker Solar Probe. And it's going to make a bunch of loops really close to the sun to see if we can understand the mechanism that shoots the stuff out. How will it not burn up? Um, It has many layers of carbon graphite that reflect the sunlight away from the satellite and the satellite hides behind its shield. Wow. Yeah, it's I'm cool. riveted by the idea of that. And cool. so yeah. it's fascinating then. You see the evidence of the solar flare long before the particles arrive at Earth. Yes, and that's pretty handy. So light from the sun only takes eight minutes to reach the Earth. I learned that in a Kellogg's cornflake commercial. Eight when, minutes. Yeah, when I was about six or seven 
years old, Mr. Sun shines his light and eight minutes later it makes the corn grow and, and us happy and everything. Um, but the particles are going slower than the speed of light and they take one to two days. So that's kind of good that we know the solar storm is coming. Mm. In 1859, campers in Colorado told the Rocky Mountain News that the northern lights glowed so bright they thought it was dawn and they started making breakfast. Yeah. Why do the northern lights go haywire? You talked about yeah. them being visible well, in Cuba right, and Hawaii. Right. So the, the, these electrons that are shooting off from the sun are just like a surge of electricity. And it's really very much like a fluorescent light. It's kind of interesting comparison. If you ever look closely at fluorescence, electricity comes in one side, goes out the other, and in between, that energy is transferred to the gas in the fluorescent light, and it glows. Well, the Earth's atmosphere, it's like being inside a fluorescent light. Here oh. comes the electricity from the sun. It hits all the, atmos all the atoms excuse me, in the upper atmosphere, and they start to glow. And so the more electricity, more surge from the sun, the more lights you get. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and it's our regular discussion about space science with astronomer Doug Duncan from CU Boulder. We're talking about solar <coughs> flares. And I want to talk specifically about uh, a new study from researcher Yuta Notsu at CU Boulder. Uh, it shows that stars that are similar to our sun produce solar flares that are much bigger than the one in 1859. Scientists <laughs> use data from the Kepler Space Telescope, which was watching thousands of stars to find planets, and they noticed something interesting about those stars. Absolutely. And I love it when scientists are clever enough to use data for more than the intended purpose. Yeah. You get your money's worth. A okay? twofer or a threefer. Exactly. So Kepler was designed that if a planet went in front of a star far away, the star's light would dim a little bit. And Kepler could discover um, the extrasolar planet, we call them. But for a, a number of the stars, instead of dimming, they brightened for several minutes or sometimes several hours. And if you could see a brightening of the whole star that far away, it must have been something really powerful. It was a flare. I guess you could call it a stellar flare. Stellar like a, flare. Like a solar flare. Now that's um, eye-opening. I imagine it's also worrisome because it's not just our own sun that we need to be thinking about flaring. Well, the great thing about studying thousands of other stars is if something's rare, you know, and it's only going to happen once in a thousand years on the sun, you'd never know it. But if you study a thousand stars and you see it, you go, oh, okay, once in a thousand years, something like this is happening. Once in a thousand years. Yeah. So, so the Carrington event probably happens once in a hundred years, but something 50 or a hundred times bigger happens every few thousand years. If there were a super flare of that variety, what's at risk on Earth? Well, the big thing is that would zap all of our satellites and we would lose a lot. I mean, they just go out of commission. and Permanently or for a period? Uh, if it's big enough, permanently. And um, the, one of some of the more exposed satellites that are out there a little farther in space are the GPS system. Oh. And uh, a super flare would probably total that. And, you know, that would, that would be pretty bad. Um, you know, without GPS, my students can't even find a restaurant. You know, they think <laughs> reading a map is this incredible archaic skill, which they don't have, but which they realize a few people have. They have no idea what a Thomas Guide is. 
Oh, heavens no. Okay. No. Uh, so are satellites at all being built to withstand, I don't know, more minor solar flares? Uh, they are. They're insulated against, you know, electrical disturbances, but you can only insulate so much. Back in 1989, there was a flare a little bit less than Carrington, and it managed to knock out a bunch of satellites for about half a day, and it actually took down the power grid for all of Quebec for about 12 hours. All the circuit oh. breakers tripped. This study out of CU Boulder shows that super flares occur every few thousand years. So in cosmic time, I suppose that's somewhat common, more rare by Earth standards. There is an early warning system for solar flares. You talked about the eight minutes. Uh, there is the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration. How, do, how does that work? Um, it's a very cool room with all these screens and you're zoomed in on the sun in ultraviolet and x-rays. And if something blows off the sun, you see it. And we do have satellites like the P Parker Solar Probe and others would let us know the particles are coming. Mm. Depending on which way the sun is pointed, you know the sun's a sphere. So if the flare is in the middle, it's pointed toward you. If the flare is at the edge, it's pointed left or right in space, and it's going to miss us. So the the Space Weather Center and, and others uh, that work with it try and predict where the solar flare is going to head and see if it's going to hit us. Could you move satellites accordingly, or did that just You know, what you'd probably do is turn some stuff off. Okay. You know, if you knew there was going to be a power surge here in the studio, you'd probably power down some things to protect them. Okay, so there's a little bit that you can do. There's there's some um, steps you can take. Yes. If we think of this as solar weather, are, are there seasons, are there cycles to this? <clears throat> you know, it would be great if we could predict the solar flare before it happens. Yeah. We can't yet. My own research earlier in my career found that when the sun was young, it was uh, spinning 30 or 40 or 50 times faster than today. It had more magnetic energy and it had lots of big flares, but that was in the past. And now our sun is middle-aged and it's kind of settled down. It has this cycle of every 11 years, there are more flares, but we don't know why it's 11 years. And this is a recent discovery that there could be a super flare. But fortunately, it's so rare, you know, if it only happens once in a thousand years, that's not something really to get worried about. Is there some sense of where we are in the 11-year We're pretty near minimum now. Okay. It's kind of a bummer because we have a beautiful solar telescope uh, up uh, at CU. You were hoping for more activity. Well, when, when it's covered with sunspots, our students can make little sketches of the sunspots, just like Richard Carrington. Um, we do have a planetarium show at Fisk Planetarium up at CU called Solar Superstorms, just on this topic. And it recreates um, being up in the Rocky Mountains when the, the, when the northern lights came down all around you. Oh it's kind of nice animation. You can be there during the northern lights. Well, I will never forget now that our sun is middle-aged. Thanks for being with us, Doug. Always a pleasure, Ryan. <laughs> Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at CU Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science.
Finally today, the Underground Music Showcase is back this weekend. UMS is a three-day music festival with more than 200 performances along South Broadway in Denver. The Denver band Floral gets top billing this year. In April, the quartet released their debut album, Postponement. Here they are with the song Bounders. This album, Postponement, features upbeat psychedelic rock backed by Connor Birch on ele- uh, electric synthesizer. He and his bandmate Colin Johnson told our colleagues at Indy 1023 that it takes a lot of equipment to create Floral's distinctive keyboard sound. I'm currently trying to figure out how to downsize it all while maintaining sonic like integrity. <laughs> He's like ha- half of the weight and half of the space in the van is yeah. his... It's more more stuff than our drummer. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it takes longer to set up than and break down than drums, you're probably bringing too much stuff. a solar flare of sound. Floral performs Sunday afternoon at the Underground Music Showcase in Denver, and for those who can't make it, indeed CPR's Indy 1023 will carry Floral's set live. You can see the full UMS broadcast schedule at CPR.org. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.